Welcome to the Thrive at 20 podcast, where we're celebrating 20 years of Thrive Partnership Group by sitting down with leaders who have helped shape the legacy of the organization. Here's founder Rob Sagan in conversation with one of those leaders today. Well, good evening, Thrive at 20 podcast listeners. In this episode, we're very pleased to be joined by Vice President and General Manager of Sobe Canada. No, not the grocery store, the biotech rare disease company. Bob McClay is with us uh, this afternoon. Bob, we're really happy to have you join us and uh, really interested in what we're going to talk about because I got a few things on my list and I'm sure you got a few things on yours, but good to see and talk to you again. And uh, I'm very keen to, to cover a fair amount of ground with you, Bob, but let's start with one. What is the, what's the update in your world in rare disease? Because I know that that's something our listeners are going to be pretty keen to understand, but you're very active in Rare Eye, which I think is the industry group, right? And are you still chairing that group in Canada? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, thanks, Rob. And uh, yeah, great to be here with you and chatting uh, this afternoon. Um, always a pleasure to speak with you. Yeah, Rare, you know, Rare is an interesting space. I, um, you know, I had a long career in, in regular regular pharma and then got into Rare about seven, eight years ago, um, being the, the general manager of Sobe Canada. Um, and Rare has been interesting. You know, when I started, um, people said, go talk to Durhan Rieger, Wong Rieger. She's the, the head of CORE, the um, Canadian Organization for Rare Disorders. And uh, I spoke with her and she, she you know, said, this is going to be a tough job. Uh, Rare is pretty tough in Canada. We don't have a rare disease policy. Uh, so it's going to be difficult. So go talk to some of the other GMs uh, and just get a sense and a lay of the land before you take this thing on. Um, so I remember having a lunch with, with one of them and they said, um, you know, you're never going to be a star in Canada as a rare disease GM. You're going to fight for every patient. You're going to have to give away a lot of product. And uh, your bosses are always going to be wondering what's going on in Canada. And that was eight years ago. And that person was exactly right. So um, maybe four or five years ago, we started up a group uh, called Rare Innovators. And at the time, it was maybe eight or 10 uh, companies that really specialized in rare, rare, rare disease uh, treatments and innovation. And, you know, our goal is really to have an environment that allows us to bring innovation into Canada because it's very difficult and very challenging uh, to do that. So, you know, we're, we're um, hoping to change policy, you know, talk to policymakers, payers, HTA bodies um, to really help them understand the challenges of bringing rare diseases, rare disease products into Canada. You know, and I'm glad, Bob, that you and some of your colleagues, uh, despite the bumpy ground that you're that you're climbing, have persisted because it's been impressive to me watching the evolution of this category over the last 10 years, how much progress you've made on behalf of Canadian patients and their families and your employees as well. Like it's come a long way. Um, it's much better than it was. I know there's still a lot of ways to go, but in your experience over the past 10 years or so, what have been the most important areas of progress you think, uh, have been realized by Rare Eye and by the participating companies. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, and you know there are times when you think you're you're stuck in the mud and you're not moving anywhere. And you know, for, for Durhan, I, I give her great credit. She's been doing this for many many years. Um, you know, and she holds meetings and brings all stakeholders together to try to open up dialogue and improve things. And there are times when I'm I'm just sitting there going, I don't know how she continues to do this because I'm so frustrated. Um, you know, but but we have made progress. So through that tireless work. Uh, and it really is purpose-driven work. You know, Rob, you you know the pharma industry. You've been in, around it for a long time. And, you know, there's great purpose. And, you know, we grew up in the, I don't know, the blockbuster era of uh, of common diseases, 
common drugs that, um, uh, you know, were, were interesting, like lowering someone's blood pressure. Well, that's fantastic. That avoids a heart attack or their cholesterol or helping someone with depression is great. Um, and there's great purpose in that. But when you, you know, meet families and moms and dads with children with rare diseases, I mean, it's, it's, it's life or death, literally, for these kids uh, and, and their families. And, um, you know, when you have any role in making a difference in someone's life, lives, I think that's, that's absolutely amazing. Um, you know, because I, I think, you know, the effect size of some of these innovative treatments can be literally life or death. And number needed to treat is often one. So we're dealing with some pretty remarkable innovation here. So there is a real purpose in everything that we do. And, and that's why probably people have so much passion and, and really try to push, uh, push this agenda. Um, and, you know, I say this often that if Canadians knew how we treat rare disease patients in Canada, they'd be mortified. And I, I think we, we take such great pride in our healthcare system. It's, it's a great pride of many Canadians. Um, and I think we do, we do pretty well. No one's got to figure it out completely, but I think the rare disease cohort of patients is one where uh, we really let them down. So, you know, this work is important. This work, uh, you know, in my opinion, saves lives. Um, but yeah, we have made some progress. So Bill Morneau, uh, the finance minister, maybe three years ago now, earmarked $1.5 billion towards uh, rare disease treatments in Canada. Now, where are we on that $1.5 billion? Has it been implemented yet? No, it hasn't. So there's, a, you know, some working committees and so on trying to, to figure out how to, how to spend that money. And as you can imagine, with government, it's hard to it's hard to get movement on something like that. It's political, um, and so on. So, um, at least that's there. At least there was there was money earmarked. At least there's a recognition that there's a problem and a challenge. I think one of the biggest challenges I've noticed in you know being in the trenches here has been, you know, there are many different jurisdictions. You've got the regulator, you've got CADETH and NS, the HDA bodies, health technology assessment bodies. Um, you've got PCPA which is the price negotiator, the national price negotiator. You've got PMPRB, um, those that, uh, that, that's a group that sets prices in Canada as comparators to um, international prices. Uh, and then you've got the provinces who are ultimately the payers and you've also got private payers. So it's a very complex matrix of, um, you know, a web that you have to get through. And it's often difficult to explain this to American colleagues or European colleagues, although their system is similar to ours. Um, but, Everyone in there that I've met in government is is well-meaning, a lot of good people, but the challenge is there's, they have to stay in their swim lane and they can't get out of it. So they might say, well, that's not my, you know, we, we gave a recommendation, it's just a recommendation, or, well, we can't, we, we just can't do it. It's not in our uh, jurisdiction. So there's kind of a bit of a pass the buck mentality. So it's really hard to get things done. So that's, that's where you get stuck in the mud. So, um, you know, you just have to keep fighting and we have to have policies where, you know, these groups can come together. Because rare disease drugs often don't fit in the same category. You know, you have to do a health technology assessment. You need good results, good data. But when you have 100 patients in Canada, you can't have long-term, you know, morbidity, mortality, placebo-controlled studies. That just that just is impossible for some of these drugs. So we need to be innovative. We need to be creative. We need to have all stakeholders at the table. Every situation is different. So you just can't put everything in the same box uh, and expect to get an outcome that's going to be satisfactory because that's that's what the problem is the, the system is set up for common drugs not rare disease drugs so it doesn't work so we need a separate pathway or we need um you know we need a way to approve these drugs and get these drugs uh, reimbursed or else that innovation isn't going to come here so um i sound kind of pessimistic but the fact that there's money on the table we're working through that um yeah and there is a recognition that there's been uh, some gaps in rare disease treatments so 
uh, I, I'm optimistic in the next, you know, three to five years that we'll make some great strides. Yeah, but you know what, Bob, my experience with you and countless others who work in different aspects of this pursuit, if you will, those of you who are in the private sector, as well as some of my public sector friends, the one thing that seems to bind you guys together that creates some persistence and patience, I suppose, is the impact it does have on uh, the families, the patients, the system. Can you give our listeners an example, maybe just one from your own portfolio, so people appreciate, you know, this is, these are not technologies that treat symptoms or are commoditized in any way, not to downplay how important all medicines are, but the gravity of the disease and the impact that these technologies and innovations have. Can you maybe just give us an example? Oh, well, I, the examples I have are, are, they're kind of some crazy examples. So I'll give one example where I was speaking at a core conference a few years ago. And, you know, I just gave a talk about bringing, bringing, you know, the challenge of bringing innovation to Canada was probably the title of the talk, which is what my title normally is whenever I do a talk. And after I was done, there was sort of, sort of a Q&A and, and a mother got up, stood up and she seemed kind of angry. And she, she, um, she kind of was cross in her tone. And she said, you know, I'm just a mother. I don't have, you know, a lot of power here. She says, you need to keep, you need to keep fighting. So you need to, you know, you're in a position of power. You need to do all you can to help change policy and make things better here. So at first I thought I'd insult, insulted her or said something stupid. Um, but in that she was really pushing me because, you know, her child, I believe her child had, had passed away of a rare disease. So, you know, she was still active in her, um, in her uh, patient advocacy group and really wanted to continue the fight, even though her, her child uh, had succumbed to the disease, which is just terrible. So, you know, er, that was early on in my, in my tenure. And that just created a fire in me to say, you, you know, the passion of that woman, the passion of that family um, and others in her, in her situation was such that it just, you know, they're just powerless. They're just a mom or a dad. And, you know, maybe some of them have to stop working to look after the child. So they have financial issues. Maybe it's a rare disease. They don't know anyone else. They've got to start up a, an advocacy group at the kitchen table so you hear these stories and it's, and it's just so, you know, gut-wrenching and heart, heartbreaking. Um, yeah. So it really is a, a labor of passion to, to help the greater good. And, and that was just one example. Uh, yeah. There's another one where, you know, uh, uh, I won't mention any names or any provinces, but a province shut off, um, uh, shut off reimbursement for a product. And it's a long story why, but they wrote a letter to the mother to say, yeah, we've decided that this drug doesn't really do anything. You might want to Call, you might want to call the manufacturer for some samples. And then it was like, you've got to be kidding me. This is a well-known life-saving drug. If the kid doesn't get the drug, you know, their their liver um, will die within two years on the liver transplant. And then the mortality rate was super high with this disease. So it was completely irresponsible that this payer sent that mother a letter. In the end, it was rectified. But just imagine the stress that was put on that poor mother um, based on a, um, you know, a letter that was so irresponsibly sent by a pair. Um, you know, those are just examples where no one really knows about these things. But when you hear these stories, and that was one of our products, and it was just, uh, you know, of course, we rushed to the help of the of the family. But um, imagine if we didn't imagine if uh, she couldn't find us or whatever, that child could have really had serious, uh, serious damage. So yeah, you know, and it helps some horror stories. It helps all of us understand and appreciate why folks in the life science industry who end up in rare disease or have a curiosity about it, need to understand how fundamentally different the field of play is, if you want to call it that. You know, in general pharma, even specialty pharma, um, 
medical device, capital equipment. You know, when when folks get interested and attracted to being involved to participate in life science, one of the main common drivers, and we see this in the culture work that we do with our partners at Enveronics, when we ask employees of different companies what their most important values are, um, what characterizes employees in the life science industry is very near the top of their list is helping others. They're very other oriented, very compassionate. You might think of the old Maslow hierarchy of self-actualization. They're sort of full consciousness people. And it differentiates that employee group from other categories that we serve in our practice. Um, having said that, you know, you, you take people who have that natural drive or core value and like we've seen in the research that's been done by people like Daniel Pink, who's looked at well, what motivates the modern employee to, to, to do their best work. Well, the first is purpose, that, that employees want to have a big impact. They want to know that what they get up every morning to do is going to have some kind of positive value. Well, you certainly get that in rare disease. It's off the charts, probably at one end of the spectrum, because like you say, well, you're not selling ketchup. You're selling life-saving, life-altering technology. So that checks that box. But one of the other things that Daniel Pink talks about in his research is the appetite that especially millennials have for having mastery of their subject or being able to sort of invest in their own capability set. And when I get phone calls from people at various levels of their career who say, hey, Rob, what can you share about the rare disease space. I'm very interested in it, or I'd like to further my career in rare disease. Invariably, what we find ourselves talking about is, you know, you got to understand that this is a unique segment within life science. And it's in some ways the upside down world <laughs> of life science, because instead of having thousands of patients per month that you bring some value to, it's it's rather than being an inch deep and a mile wide, it's the opposite. It's a it's it's a mile deep and an inch wide. Like to your point, you're working so hard to find the patients who with the proper diagnostic approach and with the right use of the healthcare system can get diagnosed accurately and quickly as possible so that the technology has a chance to make positive, you know, optimize the positive impact that it can have. Cause the sooner you're you diagnose them in almost every one of those disease states, much better the outcomes are. Um, so that's a that's a really unusual pressure on industry and on the people who sign up to work for companies like Sobe. They they have to understand the importance of speed, and it's much bigger much bigger stakes, if you will. The other thing that I find a, very interesting about the pressure on employees who want to join the space is. They have to know as much, if not more, in some cases, than many of the clinicians who are practicing in the space, because in their practice, they might see one or two patients a year, and it, it requires of them a depth of understanding, which is, which, which is something they have to invest in and have to rely on industry to help bring them up to speed in many cases through medical scientific liaison personnel, even folks who are technical representatives and folks in your management team. So I find that people who are attracted to rare disease, I find myself encouraging them to bone up on the science and know that there's a commitment here on the medical side that is at a much higher level than it might be the case in other sectors. And then 
I think I would call the third aspect of it the resilience aspect. Um, the stakes are so high that you have to watch. You don't get too high with those highs and too low with the lows because, you know, unfortunately, there are negative outcomes that are part of the journey here the patients and the families go through, and it can be heart-wrenching. I'll never forget a phone call I got from a technical representative in Toronto with a company that I had been helping for a few years. And she called me on a Friday in a really bad place, a really dark place. And I was probably the first person who answered her call. I don't know how she'd called that day, but she knew I knew her world. And she was distraught because she felt like maybe something she didn't jump on quickly enough may have been one of the reasons why a patient succumbed to their disease um, because the therapy did, and the reimbursement didn't get there as quickly as they needed it to. So, you know, I say to people, this, this category is not for the faint of heart. You have to have tremendous compassion, patience, persistence, and stick with itness because uh, otherwise it, this category will eat you up and spit you out. <laughs> so I'm wondering yeah. if as someone who's run a company in Canada, and the other thing our listeners should know is that you're one of those Canadians I'm so proud of as a fellow Canadian who's been asked to bring value outside of the Canadian borders. And I know you're asked by your organization to provide some leadership with one of the biggest U.S. divisions a few years ago, and you did a heck of a job. We can talk about the details there in a minute. But, you know, in your experience, both in Canada and the U.S. and participating globally, Bob, would you say that that gets talked about within Sobe and other companies that you're aware of the unique profile of the kind of employees who will struggle and the kind of employees who will thrive and what makes them different? What, what's your experience told you? Yeah, it's a really, uh, well, that's a long question, but a good question. <laughs> um, and, you know, you, you talked about purpose, you talked about uh, sort of the profile of the uh, of the employee. And, you know, for whatever reason, we've had great retention here in Canada and great engagement. Um, and I think it is that purpose. You know, we have products that uh, that really do help people. And they're strange products and strange labels and strange everything. But um, you know, I, I think people feel a great sense of passion and purpose. And, you know, you hear one or two fantastic stories, success stories, and it just keeps you, you get addicted to that. You get addicted to being, being able to, you know, help someone change their lives and you want that feeling again and again. Um, but, you know, one, one thing you also talked about was, you know, you have to know a lot. And I would say that people in this space are generally older. And I know that's sort of a strange thing to say. I know, um, you know, there's a book that uh, I know you're reading right now. I'm reading as well, uh, called From Strength to Strength by Arthur Brooks. And it talks about the, the second curve, the second half of your career, which, you know, unfortunately, I'm in that now. Um, and, you know, it, it, we're getting a lot of older people because you need experience. Um, you know, my daughter was green, came out of uh, university and went and worked for Pfizer. You know, she was 23 years old and she called me crying one day saying, Dad, I don't know where to go. <laughs> I, they trained me on the products, but I don't know where to point my car in the morning. I don't know who to talk to, you know, so and it kind of made me laugh because it was just so kind of sad. But um, but, you know, she 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 was just so green. And nowadays with small companies, we don't have the budgets and we don't have the resources to train people, you know, from green to uh, to experience. So we'll hire people that sort of know everything. You know, they have to be an independent, autonomous um, you know, anything that we throw at them, they've got to be able to handle. And it's not like you're selling, you know, a simple little product. These are complex, life-changing products. A lot of them are biologics infusions, you know, could be uh, in hospitals. There's, there's a, you know, they could be devices associated with them. You've got to understand reimbursement. You've got to understand, you know, legal and compliance issues. There's a whole lot that you have to know. So it's tough to just hire young people. Um, now in that book, I just mentioned, 
you know, we need different thinking styles. So it's unfortunate that most people who work in this environment are older. Um, so we're missing that sort of young, innovative minds that uh, that could really help this. So even in my hiring, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about that based on that book that, you know, maybe we need some young, fresh ideas in, in how we operate. But it, generally, they're, they're, they're older people. And as you said, the younger generation, that's really important to them is purpose. Um, so you're right, when you're guiding young people into this space, uh, it is a very purpose-driven uh, environment, but just the knowledge that you have to know getting into it, that's one of the challenges. So I think all of us in rare disease should be conscious of bringing in young minds, young ideas uh, that, could help, uh, that could help foster. And, you know, the resilience, you know, uh, being chewed up and spit out. Uh, yeah, there are certainly days when, when I, um, you know, I, I feel beat up by, uh, you know, a government agency, a policy, you know, when I'm getting beat up by my bosses uh, because the environment in Canada is just so challenging. Um, you know, I always go back to that mom or that kid who's in a wheelchair and just think, you know, my worst day is better than their best day. So I, I never get too down on myself or too uh, feeling sorry for myself for the work that I need to do. Long hours or a lot of traveling. Um, yeah, because I know, you know, if I can make a difference in someone's life, even for a day, that's made my career worth 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 doing. Oh, and Bob, you mentioned something that I think is quite important for us to talk about, and it's how does the role you're in as the leader of the Canadian Organization of Rare Disease different than your colleagues who I know you do a good job of staying in touch with um, folks who are running larger organizations in Canada, especially in life science, and they come from such an interesting cross-section. And when you compare notes with their experience and what you go through at SOBI running the rare disease business here in Canada, what's different about your job uh, compared to theirs? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, you know, and, and why we started Rare Eye was because, you know, and I say this often is that, you know, if our if policies aren't, on, we lost uh, a, a aren't in, revenue, uh, one of our rare disease products. If we cannot make uh, reasons, a, a go of it commercially in Canada, then we can I feel I'm at risk every you know, day. Whether uh, we like it or not, we're running reimbursement and, and, and we, you know, things not be approved as we maybe expected them to. So, um, yeah, you're really sort of on edge. And you'll see a lot of companies come and go. You'll see a lot of companies enter into Canada, spend a whole lot of money building infrastructure, paying consultants, paying all the fees to, to register products, get them through the approval process. And then they just, they get a, a CADETH no recommendation and they're never going to get revenue and they have to leave. So they've just burned several million dollars uh, in an environment that's not conducive to bringing innovation into Canada and they just have to go away and the product never comes. And, you know, there's lots of stats and lots of uh, data out there, you know, showing how far behind we are in the U.S., the time it takes to, uh, you know, from approval to patient or approval to reimbursement is way beyond uh, all of our competitors in Europe and the U.S. most certainly. So, you know, we're not doing well. And, you know, as a metric, you know, I think that is a good metric looking at from the time it's approved or even the time the product's registered because the patent clock, clock starts to tick uh, to the time it's actually approved by public payers. Uh, we don't do well globally. So, you know, government officials can complain about this and that, but that to me is the metric. Are we getting innovation into patients who need, need have an unmet medical need? And I don't think we're doing a good job there. So you probably find that as the Canadian leader, you have to spend way more time than some of your colleagues from bigger pharma or even specialty pharma or medical device working at that broader network, right? The government relations network, reimbursement is probably a bigger part of your day-to-day. -day. Uh, would that be accurate, Bob? Yeah. Um, I mean, that's important for, for anyone. I mean, as long as you have a team underneath you to do all the work, <laughs> you know, the <laughs> um, you know the training, leading the medical team, the reimbursement team, uh, the commercial team, 
you know, as long as you, you can empower them to do the work, you know, my, my best time is probably spent with, uh, with policymakers, um, you know, with uh, Innovate, uh, you know, IMC, Innovative Medicine Canada, Biotech Canada, Rare Eye, you know, really trying to foster and uh, and create a reasonable environment to bring rare disease innovation to Canada. Because if no one does that, then they don't understand. We, we have to continually go, you know, explain who we are, what we're doing. Uh, I remember actually telling, I won't mention names again, but one policymaker about what it takes to run uh, a small biotech company in Canada. I did a, I showed a mock PL and I said, you know, you just think we have high drug prices and have all this profit. I, I've been underwater for years and here's, here's what it takes to start a company up in Canada. And this person said, well, that's really interesting. I've never thought of that before. Can you show, can you, ha- can you show us your slides or send us your slides? So, you know, we try to learn policy. We try to understand, um, you know, how technology assessment, we have to understand, you know, uh, provincial drug budgets, and I think the other side should try to understand what we're up against. You know, Canada represents less than 2% of the global pharmaceutical market. And, you know, things like pricing, things like, uh, you know, bench research, innovation, the cost of all of that, Canada doesn't control really much of that at all. We're at the whim of a global, uh, you know, uh, um, you know, a global system. So Canada can't say to the world, no, sorry, um, you know, use an iPhone example. Canada can't say, well, we want iPhones. We're Canada. We're only going to pay ten, you know, ten cents on the dollar for iPhones because that's just what we want to do. Well, they would Apple would just laugh, laugh, uh, and keep their iPhones away from Canada. So we can't do that with drugs either. Just you know, we can't get um, a preferential treatment. The, the world is getting smaller, and you know, we need to, uh, um, yeah, we need to play by the global rules. Yeah. Now the other thing that when I think about where you lean in to provide good leadership, Bob. And I think this is more related to your character and your values as a human being. But I see you spending more time focusing on, I guess you call it esprit de corps or culture. Can you maybe shed some light on why that's the case? Yeah, culture, you know, culture has always been important to me. Um, You know, because if you like the people you work with, if you're motivated by them, inspired by them, um, if you you know, like the company culture, if you believe in it, if you believe in the values, if you believe in the products, you believe in what you're trying to do, you know, it makes you want to get up in the morning. It makes you want to come to work. It makes you okay to work late, to miss, uh, you know, miss a birthday or something because you've got something important to do. Uh, and I'm not encouraging workaholism. It's it's more just, um, if you've got a great culture, you know, that's a great, a great smoother. It's a great uh, extra motivator. It's that discretionary effort. I think you've said that before that, you know, discretionary effort really is based on, on culture of being, having a good culture. Um, cause we've all worked in companies with bad culture. You know, if you have a choice to do something or not, your culture is bad, you're going to say, screw it. I'm not doing that. But if your culture is all about the purpose and the value you bring, um, and you think about the patients and who your actual end user is, that's where I think, um, culture can really, uh, can really benefit. But, you know, as long as you provide purpose, uh, create a great culture, enjoy the people you work with. Um, you know, I've always had this motto in my head and I don't know where I got this from, but um, it, it's, it, it goes like this. Uh, criticism causes resentment. You know, feedback is good. Coaching is good, but criticism just causes resentment. So, you know, when you work with mean people, bullies, um, yeah, I think people just don't like to work in that environment. So I, I never want that. I always want to foster open dialogue Um have a great culture where you laugh together, work hard together. Um, and that, that to me is, is where culture plays well. And I found, you know, 
high performance teams are something that I talk about often. And I love working in a high performance team, you know, when you're in one and you know, when you're not. Um, and I find it easy, easier when it's, uh, let's say six to eight people, you know, very motivated, everyone's on the same page, you can move mountains. Um, when you get into a big matrix organization, it gets more difficult, you know, Soviet in Canada, we've gone from six people to 22. Um, and it, it does get harder when you get more people. So it's empowerment, it's open communication, constant communication. Um, you know, otherwise, you know, cost, toxic or caustic environments can form, gossip can form. Um, so you've just got to keep everyone informed as to what's going on. Uh, yeah, and, and when that, you that culture positive. And when you've got the bigger responsibility of larger teams, like you talked about the growth that you've been managing here in Canada, and it's now two or three times bigger than it was uh, at its foundation. And you also had your experience a few years ago being asked to come down and lead a group of, I think it was around 45 folks in the Kinneret business. And it got much bigger than that for a period of time. Yeah. In those sort of bigger landscapes, Bob, you mentioned the importance since you can't be in direct contact with everybody on the team and you've got layers. What do you find works well for you to have the kind of results that you had? Because one of the things that's self-evident is, you know, the, the business in the U.S. that they asked you to come down and help with was struggling. I mean, there was not the kind of performance that Sobe wanted to see. Yep. And you brought to them an interesting discipline. Um, yeah, there's the appropriate focus on strategy and tactics and implementation, but they'd had a lot of that from your predecessor. In fact, maybe too much, maybe too much focus on metrics and sort of banging a table and chasing KPIs. I, I watched you make sure that those things were in good shape, but then put a lot of emphasis on people and culture and, and holding your people accountable, especially the senior leadership team who had most of the headcount reporting to them. You, you held them to a very high standard and you weren't afraid to give them coaching and feedback to your earlier point. Is that the secret? Do you think when organizations get beyond the handful of startup employees What's worked for you to create what I would describe as in the U.S. case, and certainly what I see with your Canadian group now, a real attention to culture from you? Is that are those are the things that you think are important? Yeah, you, you know, you brought up an interesting um, situation that taking over the U.S. business. So, I, I you know, I think they um, there was some upheaval. Uh, one of the leaders had left. And, um, you know, I was a known entity, so they knew the Canadian, you know, the nice Canadian. So they asked the nice Canadian to come down and run one of the franchises down there. And I think what I provided was stability. You know, they knew I was, um, you know, a good person, nice person, stable. Um, and I think that's what they needed. So I think my first order of business was really listening. You know, what's what's happening? What are people's concerns, um, you know, on, on the business side and also on the, the personal side and the cultural side? And I think at that point, they just needed to be listened to. Um, maybe they were sort of steering in the wrong direction. A lot of these people were senior people. They'd been there a long time. And, you know, someone might say stuck in their ways, but I think, you know, the, the predecessors didn't listen to what they had to say. And you always have to listen. Don't always just, don't always think that, you know, reps just want it easy or employees just want it easy. Employees have a lot to offer and know a lot. Uh, and you've got to be able to suss out what's real and what's not real. So I think, you know, asking good questions, listening, being respectful, uh, but yeah, you're right. Having good sound strategy, good uh, accountability uh, and, and reasonable metrics. I think, you know, that's the, the basis and foundation of business. But I think it was really that that empathy, understanding, listening, you know, and that was through COVID as well. So, you know, the one thing that was 
a real secret to success, which I, I, I sort of questioned whether it would be, but, you know, we had a, once a month, we had a, a, an open door. It was an open door with Bob and Andrea. Um, you know, so it was myself and the, and the franchise lead or the brand lead, marketing lead. And all we did was just get on the phone with, you know, 30, 40 people and just, just sort of talk about what was going on, you know, on the global scale, North American scale, and then talk about the product. You can join the meeting if you didn't, if you wanted to or not, it was, uh, it was not mandatory. But I think people just like that connection. It was just open, honest dialogue and discussion, sometimes some good Q&A, but they just felt connected to us, uh, felt trust with us. Um, and that went a long way, just building that trust. And, you know, always in any good relationship in any culture, trust is probably one of the most important things. Um, yeah, one of my favorite books on culture uh, is called The Culture Code. I think it's Daniel Coyle. I might be wrong on that, but Culture Code is the book. Um, and it was great. My small Canadian team a few years ago, we read that book and everyone said, this is us. Like we are this, we, we do this, which was such a great testament to the culture at the time. Um, but yeah, as we all know, just like any relationship, a family relationship, a spousal relationship, uh, a culture within your organization, you can never rest on your laurels and think this is how we fix it. You know, culture check. It's never that way. Culture evolves and changes every day, just like a relationship does. So it's something that needs to be fostered and worked on uh, and always, always front of, of mind. Yeah. And I think that culture code book makes a reference to this and I've read it in other places too, like some of the Harvard business review articles that you and I enjoyed over the years, but they speak about culture, like a garden. You know, if you don't tend to it, weeds are going to start to grow, which the weeds are akin to the bad behaviors that can start to contaminate the garden. And you got to pick those quickly because they can grow in a hurry. And then reinforcing positive behavior, the stuff you want to see more of that really support the core values that are so important to each business. And they're different from business to business. You know what creates a thriving environment in a rare disease company in Canada is different than what would create a thriving environment in electronics company in Singapore. You know, that's one of the things that many people don't understand. It's not a copy paste of core values. You really have to look at it as you did when you went down to the U.S. business. You listened, well, Bob, in my view, to your employees and what they were saying to you, what they wanted more of and less of. But you also spent a fair amount of time with customers trying to understand their perspective, because if there was ever a case study that underlines how mathematically important the appropriate attention to culture is, that Kinnered experience for you is one I think about a lot because it held some interesting variables constant, right? You had knowledge of rare disease north of the border. So that was a constant. And then you, you had a product in the U.S. which was a mature product. So sales strategy and tactical implementation, even branding strategy, was really not going to make that much of an impact and create that much lift. I think you and Andrea and others did a good job of making sure that you left no opportunity on the table when it came to what we might call the commercial mix. But when you started to emphasize with the people leaders the importance of listening and building trust and building culture, that was the main ingredient that you brought into the mix, so to speak. And look at the results on a very mature product. If I'm not mistaken, the two and a half, three years you and Andrea got involved with the Sobe Kinneret business were record years for that mature product. Is that not true? Yeah. Yeah. It was, yeah, like a 20 year old, 20 uh, year old biologic. Yeah. And, and, you know, a pretty tough label, um, pretty tough to promote. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I, I might say there's some luck involved there, but, uh, or just timing, but <laughs> I don't want to take all the credit. Certainly, 
uh, Andrea, and we're talking about Andrea Suchin, who I've worked with for many years at Sobe, and uh, she did so well down there. She took a global role um, with Sobe, so she's still with us, and uh, um, yeah, she, she'll be a great GM one day somewhere, so uh, a big advocate of Andrea's, um, and she was the real tactician and strategist for the brand, um, but you know, I think one thing, you know, the listening part, so we had had the experience in Canada you know, for maybe four years before going down there. And we understood customers really well. We traveled as a pack and we would go to rheumatology meetings and we would get to know all the top doctors. And they really liked us because we were different. We weren't big pharma, you know, wanting every script and being pushy. We had this unique brand that, um, you know, we offered a good patient support program, offered, uh, you know, troubleshooting, troubleshooting solutions when they needed it. So they just, we just built trust with them. So I think, you know, it was that experience and that credibility of of understanding the market super well, understanding what customers needs needed, what patients needed. Um, yeah, so I think that that's maybe what translated so well for Andrew and I when we went down to the U.S. and and helped them with their business. And I I think that you know that one two punch of very robust strategy started, and I think this is also Andrea's gift as a marketer is her premise as she explained it to me was to start assuming she knew nothing, like to come in with a very open mind, ask a lot of intelligent questions, listen carefully to the customer as you described them and to the employees who could share market feedback and then find the opportunities for strategic adjustment, which I think you and she did a great job of. But that's the same approach you took to the people side too, Bob. And so what I saw was you got the fundamentals right and you developed good fundamentals that your leadership team could see was done the appropriate way you didn't come in all guns a blazing trying to copy and paste what worked in Canada to the U.S. because you knew that wasn't going to work but that you know it's almost a the power of what I might call introverted leadership like I would characterize you as a friend of mine as someone who's more introverted than extroverted well to me there's a huge advantage when it comes to leading an organization is that people like you and Andrea will start with the assumption that you need to listen first and pull the insights in the, in terms of strategy and even your culture approach from what you hear and take advantage of the obvious, like just listen first. And then you'll see that the answer, the insight is sitting right in front of you and then have the guts of course, to implement and get people behind both strategy and your culture approach. But boy, in a nutshell that worked. And I know that sounds simple, but and I'd hate to criticize extroverts because I'm an extreme extrovert. So I guess I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm criticizing myself. But I think the first instinct people have is to rush in with the solutions. And I think the more introverted approach, well, I mean, this was when, when I read Good to Great, I know you read that book too. That was the most important takeaway for me was the surprisingly powerful approach of the more modest, what he called them, level five leaders who weren't the table bangers. They weren't the guy with all the answers. They were typically more quiet and thoughtful and very good at listening. And I think that might be, Bob, when you reflect on your own brand as a leader and why it's been successful for as long as it has, to me, that's probably the most essential ingredient. Yeah, you know, the, the introvert-extrovert continuum is is an interesting one. And, you know, as a long-suffering introvert, you know, you have to overcome that. And, um, you know, getting into sales, you know, you're exhausted by the end of the day, because you're going outside your comfort zone being, you know, gregarious and bold and, uh, you know, talking a lot. Um, but that, yeah, that introversion as a leadership style. Um, yeah, that, that's really worked. And another great book called Quiet, I think Su Susan Cain is the author of that book. And 
um, you know, I've read that book and actually am uh, leading a, a, a DEI group uh, with Sobe in North America uh, for introverts. And really it's about strategies of, you know, both for introverts and extroverts. As an introvert, how do you, um, how do you get your point across? Like what strategies can you employ to make sure during brand planning, your ideas are in there? When you're in a group meeting, how can you make sure that, you know, you don't get left behind and don't say anything? And for extroverts, how do you pull a lot of some of these, you know, brainiac introverts? Like think about accountants, medical types. The, the, a lot of these people are maybe less extroverted, but are really smart. So you got to draw the the ideas and information out of them. So, um, you know, it's been very empowering. And, you know, it wasn't really my idea to do the DEI quiet group. Um, it was uh, a Harvard MD uh, named John Yee, who I worked with at Sobe, whose idea this was. So him and I led this group. Um, but really, you know, really powerful for these people to help them come out of their shell. Um, but, you know, I, I, I find I'm an introvert in, in big crowds, but when I get in front of my team, you can't stop me from talking because I'm comfortable. Um, but yeah, the listening part is a big thing. I think that's that's the key in sales. I always said as a salesperson, as a sales manager, sales leader, you really have to listen. Listening is the most important thing in sales. Otherwise, you're just waxing on and you don't, you know, you don't know what the person really wants to hear. Um, but yeah, as a leader, same thing, listening, I think is a, is a critical element. Otherwise, you know, if you're just the, the loudest one in the room, that doesn't make you the leader. No, and it's funny now when you think back to, Bob, one of the other aspects that I believe defines many of the, many of the reasons why you've had the kind of long successful run you've had is you're also someone who constantly invests in, in your own game. Like you're like the consummate corporate athlete and maybe that's partially explained by the fact that you were an athlete in your formative years right you were a football player you played at Guelph if I remember right yeah and had an opportunity to do your MBA down at Auburn which is like a hotbed of American college football one of the top programs so uh, talk about someone who at a very early age you were not afraid to push yourself into the big arena just like you weren't afraid to take on the U.S. responsibility in business where does, does that appetite come from that you've never let go of? You've always been a student of constant learning for yourself. You push yourself very hard. I know you even do that today. You've, you've, you, I think you were very proud of the fact that you just finished uh, hiking the Bruce Trail, one of only over 4,000 Canadians who've been registered as, a, as having completed that. So someone who just stayed with a, a long-term goal like that. And I know you're a cyclist, a competitive cyclist at times. I've seen you on the golf course and you temper your competitiveness because we know how frustrating it is to hit the little white ball, but you always work on your game, Bob. Where did that come from? Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I think that's something, I don't know, you're kind of born with. I, there's a real competitiveness, certainly in sports, there was always a real competitiveness. I always wanted to win. Um, yeah, and I don't know. I, I had, you know, disciplinarian type parents. They were both teachers. My dad was a principal mother was a teacher. So they had certain expectations. So just, you know, you, you had to be a certain way and, uh, you know, you know, and I think that was good. That was good grounding for me. So just good discipline, uh, and real drive, but yeah, sports, certainly a, a real super drive. So I might be quiet, but on the football field, I wasn't quiet. Um, yeah. So I, I really love sports. And even today I, you know, I set goals and that was one, I think that was one of the secrets to my success throughout my career was, uh, I don't know if it was Ken Blanchard or someone years ago um, talking about setting goals. I read a book and that really inspired me. So for years and years, I set six month, one year, five year goals and, you know, all the various categories like, you know, career, learning, relationships, finances, all of that. And I think that really drove me. 
Um, and what I learned from that is if you write it down, it'll happen. <laughs> Somehow something in the universe will, will steer you towards that if you write down a big enough goal. So I, I'm a big believer in that. Um, but yeah, uh, and, and I think I still do that to this day. You know, I've got cycling um, goals every year, even though I'm getting old, I still like to push myself. And, um, you know, even in, in business, like even taking over Sobe all those years ago, I said, I want to take, I want to make this, you know, a 25 plus million dollar company or take this, uh, this, this job and parlay it into something bigger. So there's always, you know, a career push, a personal push. Um, yeah. So I don't know whether it was, uh, you know, athletics sort of did that for me, but um, yeah, when you see things, you know, going from little old Guelph to Auburn and coaching at Auburn, you know, the first game I went to 85,000 people, um, you know, massive stadium. And here's this little kid from Sarnia down at Auburn coaching football. It was, uh, it was very awe-inspiring and intimidating, but yeah, I jumped right into the big arena and made a great experience of that. And, you know, I think those, those, those moments of, uh, of stretch, I think are really what, um, what make you grow, uh, you know, even jumping in and just becoming a GM, you never a GM before you've got to start somewhere. So I appreciated the opportunity and, you know, I'm trying to make the most of this to make this, uh, a real viable uh, going concern. I mean, we went from pioneers in rare disease to leaders in rare disease. That's what, what we want to be as a company. Now, one of the pitfalls of being a constant learner is you're subject to comparing current Bob to previous Bob, and if you don't have a sense of humor, it can be a bit of a depressing journey <laughs> for constant learners to go, I did what five years ago? Yeah. But thank God you, like many other constant learners that we have in common, have the sense of humor to be able to laugh at yourself and think, oh my God, if I could just talk to my 20-year-old self, what, what would Bob McClay at your age now say to Bob McClay at 20? That, like, what would be a couple of the most important points you'd want them to more fully appreciate? Geez, that's a tough one. Yeah, because that guy was, uh, where was that guy? That, well, that guy was probably still at Guelph at the time. Um yeah, I, you know, I don't know. I I, I guess even, you know, because I did a science degree at Guelph and then an MBA at Auburn. And, you know, I, I loved and when I find out, found out about this industry, I thought, what a perfect marriage. I love the science behind it. I love the business element of it. You know, these products you're selling are constantly changing with new science and innovation. So it's fascinating work. Um, so, yeah, I, I would have said just keep going like uh, you're on a great path. Keep the discipline, um, you know. Uh, just keep pushing. I, I probably would have pushed harder sooner. You know, I was in, I was in sales maybe a bit too long, but, but I don't know. I, I think I needed that, that seasoning to, to work on social skills and business skills. So I don't know that I would change anything as far as a career goes, but yeah, I would, I would just say, you know, you've done well in school, you've done well in your sports. Um, you know, you're going to go to Auburn, have a great experience, parlay that into uh, into, into a successful career. Yeah. And it's always amazing when I go back to events at Guelph or, or Auburn and you see these people, you know, these were goofball football players that were my buddies in the locker room. And now they're running companies, they're successful people. And, you know, I, I always love hiring athletes because they have the discipline, the teamwork, overcoming challenges, obstacles. Um, you know, there's just a great uh, drive and spirit in, in that type of group. So I, I'm always impressed with how well people have done that when I, I wouldn't have expected that. Cause I thought they were just, you know, a goofball, uh, you know, pouring soap on you in the shower or something. <laughs> you know, they were just, yeah. just goofball. You know, because you think of football players are not that bright, but they, uh, you know, in university, you've got to be smart enough to be there and a great drive. And yeah, they've all done really well. So it's good to see. Yeah. In the last, no, let, let me phrase this question a little differently than I was going to. 10 years from now, Bob, I know it's hard to imagine that far ahead, but looking back, but just for giggles, what do you think? 
Bob then would say to Bob now about what might be in front of you as uh, an area that you should pay attention to, an aspect of your life that you might find becomes more important at this stage. What do you think is in front of you in terms of the new and improved Bob going forward? Yeah, that's a that's a tough one. Um, I, I listened to something recently about about CEOs, and um, yeah, maybe it's in that uh, uh, that book um, uh, from Strength to Strength. It was talking about CEOs and how a lot of them are burned out. They work 60, 80 hours a week. They their their family relationships start to break down. They're not happy. You know, even when they're supposed to be off, they're working. You know, when their when their wife leaves to go or their spouse leaves to go to the store, they run down and go on their computer to do some more work. They're sort of even hiding their work. Um, I, I wouldn't say I'm at that stage, but I mean that's a real danger. You we all get into zones where there's a real push. Um, and yeah, you forget about the rest of life. So, you know, for me, I went through a bit of a you know, marriage breakup over the last little while and you know, I focused in on work and exercise, which sort of kept me sane because that's obviously a very challenging situation. Um, but yeah, that, um, but you've got to find balance in life. And and I think COVID really hurt a lot of people too, just relationships, you know, personal relationships, family relationships, uh, even business colleagues, we didn't see each other for a few years. So I, I think we cocooned into our own little world, you know, we became very uh, introspective, um, even you know internal swirl with with your work there wasn't a lot of external reach out external customer engagement um so i think that was really tough for everyone so yeah i, I mean balance balance in life is always a, a really tough thing to 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 master because when you get into something and you're a, a driving type type a person you you know at all costs you get all of that done and you know another great book um that you know of rob called off balance by matthew kelly that was a great book on work life balance on and and it sort of dissed that term work-life balance. It was more about, you know, just energy and, um, um, you know, satisfaction. If you find satisfaction at work, you don't care how many hours you work. If you find satisfaction in your personal life, you know, you try to balance those out. It was more about your energy levels. Uh, and it was more about being satisfied with what you're doing. So if you're doing something you don't like, maybe work-life balance is an issue for you. But if you're loving what you do, work-life balance isn't an issue. And, and there was one one line in that book where he did some research and showed that, you know, we went into companies and asked, you know, who has the best work-life balance? And everyone sort of pointed to the same person. And this would just be a high-energy person. They had a great social life, a great life outside of work, but they were also a high high performer at work. And he said the people that had the best, you know, in quotations, work-life balance worked an average of nine hours more per week than everyone else. And he, he wondered what that was all about. So it really was about the satisfaction, the energy, um, both in your personal life and at work. So I really, I really like that because that, that work, that work-life balance term came in a bunch of years ago and people really struggle with that. And companies thought it was their responsibility, you know, to make people have a good life and a good, good work uh, balance, but it's really not that it's up to the individual and, and again, energy and, uh, and satisfaction. So I, I think those would be the things I would remind myself 10 years ago, just make sure you've got satisfaction in all areas of your life and uh, you know, work work for that uh, for that balance. Yeah, and I think having the courage to put what we might call positive pressure on yourself in each aspect of life so that you don't end up with a overdeveloped muscle on one side and an underdeveloped muscle on another side of your life, but I've seen you do this, I've seen other successful leaders take what that guy wrote in his book and really put it into practice. I think the secret to that is having the courage to realize that 
you know, these are like spokes on a wheel. And if you don't have the right pressure in all the spokes, sooner or later, that tire is going to flatten and, and uh, fall apart. So whether it's your physical health or mental health, your ability to lean into the community that you belong to, your family, your financials, your spiritual health, for that matter, and then work. I mean, those are all spokes on the wheel. And if you don't have energy and goals in those areas that allow you to flourish, you know, sooner or later, whatever's deficient is going to come back and, you know, bite you in the, in the proverbial. I mean, you and I know lots of people, for instance, who perhaps in their 30s and 40s didn't pay enough attention to their physical or mental health. And, and they'll struggle sooner or later, it'll catch up with you, right? Yeah. So I love this idea that you're talking about here, which is this guy's research points to folks who are energized by all aspects of life. And I think the energy comes from what you said at the beginning of this call, you know, give yourself, have the courage to give yourself stretchy goals, really think them through, really try to design them in a very smart way, write them down seems to work to your point, but look at every aspect, right? Not just a couple of aspects of life. And the more you do that, the more well-rounded you appear to everybody else. And you'll be the person that other people point to when some facilitator asks, who's the person in here that has the best work-life balance? I think that's when I think about you, Bob, and how much progress you've made, how much success you've had. I don't just think about what you've done in the industry. I see how successful you've been outside of the industry as well. And I think that's where it comes from. I think it's that courage, the goal setting and the tenacity. And maybe that's that competitive spirit that you learn from your parents and from athletics, but that drive and that energy is uh, something I know others wish they could bottle when you, when you talk to them, like where does he get all the time of the day to do all that stuff, the cycling, the leading the companies, the having a good social life and a good family life. And so good on you, Bob. Yeah, I got I, one day I'll start acting my age, but uh, I, I hope that actually never happens. <laughs> no kidding. Listen, is there anything that we haven't covered that you'd like us to talk a little bit about? I'll give you as the guest today a bit of an open forum. Is there anything that comes to mind that you'd like for us to kick around a little bit that might be helpful to other folks? Um, yeah, I um, yeah, you know, I I really love that whole the whole. Um, you know, purpose-driven life and the balance of things, you know, we, we talked a lot about that, but, um, you know, find something that you really have great pur purpose and passion for. And, you know, I jokingly say to uh, some, some young people I know, they ask me what I do. Uh, and I, and I jokingly say, I, I save babies and, you know, it, it's a bit lofty of a goal, but, you know, I really get up every morning and believe that that's what I do. And I kind of joke around about that. And, you know, they call me a cartoon superhero and I don't really know what that means, but they're into Marvel and they kind of, they kind of <laughs> laugh at the whole thing, but it, it, you know, when you have great purpose, um, you get out of bed every day and, and you feel really lucky and blessed that you found a vocation that gives you that purpose. And you, you hope that you're making a difference. And, you know, again, I'll get emotional in, in saying this and I do all the time that, you know, if I play any role at all in in saving anyone's life, then that's a career well spent. And sometimes we have to play God. Sometimes, you know, we're the ones deciding whether someone gets a drug or not. We give it away for free or not. I don't really like being in that position. And I think, you know, different policies are what create this this uh, situation. And it's very difficult. My medical person and I will will have to talk to the doctors, make decisions on this. And, you know, it's gut-wrenching. Um, 
So, you know, but you know that if you're going to make a difference in someone's life, you've got to, you know, take a chance, put yourself out there and and, uh, and make those tough decisions. So I love the purpose of that. Uh, yeah. And strive for balance. Um, we all often struggle with that. COVID certainly hurt a lot of people with no balance. But yeah, we're getting back out of that. So let's all focus on getting back to balance in all aspects of life from, you know, mental, physical health, um, relationships and family uh, and balance out work as well. So you know, there's a lot of uh, a lot of tough things in the world. So focus on the positive and, uh, you know, with balance and purpose. And hopefully we'll all get on well and have a great life. Well, I appreciate you sharing your wisdom with our audience here, Bob. I really enjoyed the conversation and hopefully we'll get a chance to do it again soon. All right, Rob. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed it. Take care. Okay, bye bye.